0: We said last week that 1 Corinthians 15 is a magnificent chapter that deals with the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So many things we could say about it. I thank God every, almost every service, Sunday school lesson, every time we go so many witnessing, that the resurrection is a mandatory inclusion as we give the gospel. And um, Paul's defending the resurrection. The Greeks did not believe in the prospect of a resurrected body. You might want to make a note about that as you think about the context which Paul's writing. The Greeks did not believe in the prospect of a resurrected body. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, when Paul was preaching that great sermon there on Mars Hill at Athens, the philosophers scoffed at him. And uh, after he preached about the resurrection, they said, "Well, we'll come back and hear you about hear about this another time." To the Greeks, the body was the source of man's weakness; it was considered a corpse or tomb. With that philosophy in mind, you can imagine Corinth, which was on the other side of Athens, that the Greeks there in Corinth held to that same concept. When Paul came to Corinth, when Paul preached the gospel, and I want you to imagine with me, probably nobody living today could preach the gospel more gloriously, more powerfully, uh, more convincingly, more compellingly than the Apostle Paul. I mean, you think about some of his messages when we read through the book of Acts, we have a record of his preaching, he would say things like, why think you think why you think he it, it, it a thing incredible that God should raise the dead? And he would just punctuate his messages with just powerful thoughts about the resurrection. Now, when he got to Corinth, he had a little bit of a stall there in terms of just people responding. And uh, you know, he got that place where he just shook the dust off his feet and he said, "The blood be upon your own head." And uh, you know, he got a little frustrated, and, and I understand that. You know, as a preacher, you get frustrated, you know, if you don't see results after a period of time. People are not responding. You think it was, what's wrong with me or whatever may be there. And, uh. And God started working. People got saved. He had to change his location. He got out of the synagogue and he changed location and went to a man's house next door to the synagogue He started preaching there. And the the chief, the, the, the guy that was the head of the synagogue got saved. And that just kind of set things in motion. And that's just how God works. Sometimes somebody gets saved and a family gets saved and all of a sudden it just sets things in motion and there's a flood tide of things that God does there. And, you know, we're praying for something like that to happen in our church as we start to reassemble that we'll see some significant salvation decisions and God will just start a flood tide. Things that will happen. There were multiple family members and people get saved in that community, and uh, that happened at Corinth. And people are getting saved. And as we read through First Corinthians, we we read about some of the names of these people that that got saved who were prominent members of the church at, at Corinth. There, I mean, people like Chloe and Gaius and people like that. I mean, wonderful, wonderful names that are given there. The people at Corinth, when Paul wrote this this book. And this chapter specifically did not have a problem with the doctrinal aspect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul had to defend it and Paul had to speak about it because some were a little bit shaky about it. But for the most part, the leadership there and, and, and those who had been saved under Paul's ministry, they believed, I mean, con- concretely their, their their faith was settled on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew that he rose again from the dead. But because of Grecian Philosophy about the body, and their disagreement, their disbelief about uh, about the the possibility of a resurrected body, which is the crux of most of First Corinthians 15 and and part of John chapter five, what Jesus speaks about, and Daniel's prophecies there over in Daniel chapter 12. These believers he's writing to had a hard time believing in the resurrection. A resur- the resurrected body of a believer. Now, I want to remind you this evening as we get into this. First Corinthians 15, and we find this in verses 1 to 4, was written to defend the resurrection. If Christ is not risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. If Christ is not risen from the dead, what's different between Christianity and, and, and any other religion? You know, we've got to go back to that. Secondly, to reinforce the resurrection, he had to reinforce the message of the resurrection as a necessary component of the gospel message. I want to remind us tonight, the resurrection is a necessary component of the gospel message. It's a necessary component of receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. Because the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart that God is raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You have to reinforce with a person getting saved, they're not just believing in a, another man, another They're believing in the Son of God, amen? The only one that ever rose again from the dead. Fourthly, he wrote this, uh, thirdly, excuse me, he wrote this to reinforce that there is going to be a future resurrection of every believer's body. There will be a future resurrection of every believer's body. And, you know, we don't spend enough time preaching about it, but, I mean, you've you got to understand right now that that's, that's a critical component about our doctrine, about eschatology, about the resur- about the, the future resurrection. And we spent time on the already. I'm not going to get into tonight, but the Bible talks about two resurrections. And if the rapture was to come tonight, those of us who have loved ones that were saved, and their bodies are buried, their souls are with the Lord. Thank God for that. Amen. They're in heaven. But at the rapture, there'll be the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel. And the Bible says the order of the rapture will be the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the clouds to forever be with the Lord in the air. So Paul wrote this, and, and I'm looking forward to the third message on from chapter 15. Because it reinforces the fact of Paul just elaborating here very extensively in this chapter about the future resurrection of the bodies of believers. And I'm going to tell you, if you've grieved over a loved one that's passed this life, I mean, what a, what a great comfort to know. Because that's exactly why he wrote First Thessalonians 4, because they, they asked, well, will I ever see this person again? And, and what about their bodies and things like that? And Paul answered all that in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 4, 14 to 18. And he closes that section by saying, we're for a couple one another with these words. But there's a fourth reason. The first reason is to defend the gospel, the God, the the doctrine of the resurrection. The second reason is to, is to remind them that the resurrection was a necessary component of the gospel message. The third reason, as I mentioned, was to reinforce the fact that there will be a resurrection of the body of the believers. But there's a fourth reason. That's why we're verses 29 to 34. The fourth reason Is that God's people, then and now, are living, they're living out in the power of the resurrection. Two passages of scripture I'd like you to turn with me, even if you have your notes in front of you. I'd like you to turn with me to two passages of scripture. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 3. While you're turning there, 29 to 34, verses 29 to 34 teach us how the reality and the power of the resurrection impacts lives. Now, if you're new to the faith, um, you've never gone through discipleship, let let me give you a basic foundational principle here. What we believe... Affects how we behave. What we believe affects how we behave. Listen, I got saved in a Bible church. I, don't, I have no apologies about that. I'm thankful for it. The pastor got saved under, identified as the independent Baptist. He never, never moved the church to be independent Baptist. I don't know why, but that, whatever. I discovered on my own through my own personal study reading that I, I agree with the convictions of Independent Baptists, and even though I was in a Bible church at the time, I I, I felt like I was independent Baptist at the time. Was, and by the way, I identified that Independent Baptist and I wouldn't be anything other than independent Baptist. Amen? But there are some categories of churches, and I'm not being despairing on I'm not being disparaging them on this, but somehow when they teach doctrine it is dry. It is dead orthodox. It, I mean, it is, it is dry, drier than a bone, I'm telling you. And I've heard some people preach about, teach about the inspiration of Scripture or the deity of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, people are snoring right through the, the lesson there. When I got into the Independent Baptist Movement, I realized that what, what's going on in a lot of, a lot of churches and places is they, they have, they've left their bearings of realizing what we believe affects how we behave. And when you teach a doctrine, you have to be thinking three steps beyond what you're teaching about how do I make this apply to the person's life so that it comes alive in their life and they understand what it means. And we're going to see that at the resurrection. So what we believe, you need to write this down, especially if you're a new believer, what we believe affects how we behave. That my belief in doctrine is demonstrated in my duty. Do I follow through with what I've learned? Do I believe it? Will I obey it? Right belief determines right behavior. Right doctrine determines right duty. I'm as simple as that. Now, with that being said, look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. This was Paul's philosophy. This was Paul's mission for his life. He said in verse 10, that I might know him, that I may know him, and notice this phrase, and the power of his resurrection... Now, that wasn't just Paul's philosophy. That is the mission and philosophy of every Christian. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable to his death. Now, you're going to park on that right now. And as we get through verses 29 to 34 tonight, you're going to see what Paul means. Then in Colossians 3, what you notice, verse 1, just for time. I'm giving you a lot of time on this introduction. Paul said in Colossians 3, verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, that, that, is a, that is lesson 101 for every new believer. If you're saved, if you're saved, you ought to say amen if you're saved, amen? You are risen with Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. That changes the whole outlook in terms of how we see life and what our priorities are and where we're going and what we're doing. If ye then be risen with Christ, and if you're saved, you are risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above. Verses 29 to 34, it's about the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the life of every born-again believer. What does the resurrection do through me? What does the resurrection do to me? And what does the resurrection do for me? And what does the resurrection do for other people? Now, notice in verses 29 to 34, we see three things tonight. And the core emphasis I want you to notice, if you'll keep this in the back of your mind, because we're going to get into a couple of difficult passages right now, are, or passages that have been, been misinterpreted, I should say, uh, by, by many people. We want to remember tonight, we're looking at how the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes an impact. Paul is defending why he believed in the resurrection, what the resurrection did his Now keep that in the back of your mind as we study this. Because if you don't keep that in the back of your mind, you're kind of wondering, why did he throw this in there? If it all fits contextually with the passage, we just have to understand where he's going from verse 1 to verse 58 is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his impact on our life. Now notice number one. Number one, let's write this down. The resurrection makes an impact concerning the conversion of sinners. It makes an impact concerning the conversion of sinners or more. Simply said, the impact of the resurrection revo- results in salvation. Now, notice verse 29, because as you read this, if you, don't, if you don't understand the context here, you're going to be all out of whack on this thing. He's going on, he's, he's been talking about the resurrection here, and he's, had, he's not starting a new thought. He's continuing you know, his justification, why he does what he does. And he says this in verse 29. Else then. Else what? He says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, if you've read this in your devotions, if you've taught through 1 Corinthians 15, you probably skipped over the verse. Or you probably scratched your head wondering, what is he talking about? First, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be baptized for the dead? Now, if you do some study on it, there are... There are a lot of interpretations. One, one, man, one man thinks there's 400 interpretations about that verse. I don't know how you come to 400 interpretations, but they, they, have, they said there's many 400 interpretations on this. And if you read this on the surface, look again. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not? It would seem to imply on the surface that there were some doing what is called baptism by proxy. Or vicarious baptism. Now, I have to tell you this. Between the first and second century, because of Gnosticism, which we've been talking about that a little bit on Sunday nights on our First John series. There were some teachers that rose up, men of prominence, and I'll give you a couple of names. You might want to look them up because they were, they were pretty heretical. Uh, men like Marcion and Cerinthus who, you know, they, they were Gnostics, and as Gnostics, they believed that Jesus was a spirit, but he had no flesh. And they believed that because they believed that all all matter was evil, and if Jesus had flesh, there's no way Jesus could be the Son of God. That's why John wrote First John to defend the deity Jesus Christ, that he was 100% man, but he was also 100% God, and being 100% God, he had no sin, Amen. And you go to First John 4, Paul, John does a magnificent job defending the deity of Jesus Christ, meaning being, being that he'd come in the flesh. But this man Marcion and Cerinthus, they promoted baptism by proxy. They felt that there, perhaps that uh, some people had died and they would have gotten saved. So if I get baptized for them while I'm alive, um, that maybe that will help their soul. There's a cult that practices that today. They're called the Mormons. Let me say this tonight. Mormons are not Christian. They're not part of the Christian faith. They never have, they never are, and they never will be. They are a cult. They deny Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Study them out. They believe Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. They practice baptism for the dead. I read where one lady got baptized 3,000 times for 3,000 people. They really believe that. Don't make fun of it. I I, I have pity in my heart for these people. They need to get saved. So, superficially, number one, you read this verse, you might think, well, it implies baptism for the dead. But let me go on. Because we're going to get to the meaning. There's a second thing I want you to notice very quickly. Baptism is a Bible doctrine. Paul referred to the ordinances in chapter 11 verse 1. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are two ordinances of the local church. Go back to your Baptist, the Baptist theology. We believe in two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, what do we mean by baptism? We, baptism, by its very word, means immersion underwater. It means to be submerged. It means to go all the way under the water. Okay. Now, Baptism does not save. We need to get that straight. Baptism does not save. There are some, like the, like the Church of Christ, that practice baptismal regeneration. They're not the only ones. There are some that believe either by sprinkling or pouring out of water or in through infant baptism that saves the soul of the individual. My friend, there, that's a very sincere belief, but it's not a biblical belief. It's an incorrect belief. Baptism does not save your soul. Baptism never saved any soul. Baptism cannot save your soul. Baptism, scripturally speaking, is a symbol of one's salvation. Baptism follows salvation. Baptism never precedes salvation. Do we get it tonight? Amen? Baptism does not save an individual soul. Baptism regeneration is not taught by the, in the Bible. Baptism regeneration, being baptized, Baptized for to get saved is a work. Listen, we're not saved by work. We're saved by the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. So we must understand tonight, baptism is an ordinance. Now, wherever we read about baptism, we must remember, baptism in the New Testament immediately followed one's salvation. In Acts chapter 2, and it's a symbol representing that they, their identification with Jesus Christ and His death, burial, resurrection. When a person goes under the water. It represents how we wore that Jesus Christ died for our sins when he comes up and was buried. When he comes up out of the water, it represents that he was resurrected. Okay, now for the believer, we were once dead in sins. Read Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. We were dead in sins and trespasses. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have newness of life. You go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 does a beautiful job, helping us understand the symbolism about baptism. Baptism, everyone who gets saved is supposed to get baptized. Everyone who gets saved and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Needs to get baptized because publicly is telling others that of your identification with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So baptism in the Bible. Now, I was just saying here that when we read about baptism in the New Testament, people who got saved in that first century, and where it's a little bit foreign to us, but as soon as they got saved, they got baptized. You read Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, they that gladly received his word were baptized. I mean, this is the day of Pentecost. Those people got, there were 3,000 people that put their trust in Jesus Christ and savior and i'm talking about i'm talking about hardened jews who were stuck in judaism i mean they got saved and they got baptized. they were not ashamed to tell other people listen I'm not, I'm not i'm not a judaizer anymore i'm i'm a christian i'm a born-again believer i put my faith and trust in jesus christ we go over to acts chapter i think it's acts chapter 8 and we read about the this man that uh, this uh, uh, a man by the name of philip who went to meet a a man out in the the desert there who was called the Ethiopian eunuch. And when the Ethiopian eunuch got saved, the Bible says immediately they they went into the water and that man got baptized. I mean, it's, it's kind of neat. God led them to an oasis right there. And that man knew the baptism wouldn't save him. But as soon as he got saved, he submitted himself to Philip. And Philip, under the authority of the church at Samaria, baptized this man in water. He did. He got baptized. That identifies his faith. We read later on. Another passage of scripture where, where when when the gospel came there to Caesarea and uh, Peter preached the gospel there to, to Cornelius' his household there, and as soon as he got saved, you know, Paul, Paul made a uh, Peter made a, a very, very dogmatic statement. He says no one should keep these people from getting baptized. They put their profession, faith in Jesus Christ as Savior there. They were ready to get saved, and as soon as that happened, Peter found a place where there was water deep enough to baptize them in, and he baptized them. I mean, people at that time got baptized. And let me say this to you tonight, because when Paul wrote this, I'm going to tell you what the what the mindset of people was when paul wrote this the mindset in the new testament as the scripture is being written that baptism was always associated with salvation baptism did not save but baptism was always associated with salvation when you read about baptism even in the in systematic theology baptism is never separate as it's, its own separate theology baptism is always associated with soteriology and salvation because it automatically follows salvation that you identify with jesus christ so when paul's writing this i want you to understand a couple of things here As Paul writes this, the implication of what he's saying here—he's talking about some people that are saved and have been baptized—and what he's talking about here, this gets to now the meaning, the context here. He's saying here that people get baptized, people get saved because of the testimony of a saved person who's passed away. And because of the influence of that person, they realize they can say, look at it again. Because there's a couple of words that we have to look at. First of all, look at the word for. The word for is used in Scripture. could have many different meanings. It could mean over. It could mean above. It could mean beyond. It could be, mean instead of. Or it could mean because of. So when we read this and we look at the context, the meaning means because of. Dead is not talking about unsaved people. The dead is talking about saved people who have died and their bodies have been buried. And what Paul is saying here. Else, what shall they do? He's talking about defending the resurrection. What shall they do which are baptized for the dead? He's saying, there are some people that had a loved one who passed away. And the loved one had a testimony for Jesus Christ. And this person who was unsaved heard at the funeral that there's going to be a future resurrection. And at that future resurrection, and I'll say more about this in a moment, there's going to be a reunion of the believers in heaven. And he heard that, and they were moved. And they thought about the dead in Christ, the dead in Christ that are in that grave. And thought about the influence, a good testimony of that person. And they thought about, you know, that person's going to rise from the dead. And that person's saved. I need to get saved. Because I'm not saved. I I will not have a reunion with them. And so he's talking about someone who gets saved and gets baptized. And he says the resurrection is a motive. It's an incentive that encourages them because they know there will be a future resurrection one day. Now look at I've had the privilege to do a lot of memorial services, celebration life services. I have one coming up this Saturday. I have one coming up perhaps in a few days. I just did one. It was either last Wednesday. At every service, I try to remind people, the family that's there that's grieving and is sorrow, of the prospect of a future resurrection and reunion with that loved one. When we have the internment of the body at a gravesite, I almost always, almost always read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 57. Because there's hope for the believer, amen? There's hope. The resurrection gives hope. And I emphasize a reunion in heaven as an incentive, as a motivation, as a, if you want, to, to go the person on. So that they would recognize the unsaved, believe, the unsaved family members. They'd really recognize the need for trusting Jesus Christ, the Savior. And when you read through the Bible, the Bible speaks very clearly and lovingly about a future reunion. For instance, in Genesis 37:35, Jacob, when he heard about Joseph, then they, his brothers and their evil deed brought back his tattered garments, his tattered co- coat, uh, coat of many colors, Jacob lamented, but he said this, I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. You know, he knew he was going to be reunited with his son. He knew something about a future, future resurrection. David said of his deceased son that Bathsheba bore, the first son, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, which I alluded to, the Bible says, We shall be caught up with the dead in Christ and in, in the clouds. Um the testimony, and I love quoting this from, from Hebrews chapter 11. The testimony of every, of every person who dies in the faith is, that, is this. He being dead, yet speaketh. And I've had occasion, I shared recently uh, in one of our shares, I think it was a Wednesday night service, I think, about uh, Brother Les Johns, who my daughter-in-law Jennifer, with her soul-winning partner back in 2012, knocked on his door and invited him to come to church. And he came and he got saved a few days later. And, uh, and he, he always used to say this to me and others in the church. He would say, you know, the best thing ever happened to me, somebody knocked on my door because I found Jesus Christ as my Savior and got saved. And he would just, he would just you know, say things like that. And then the day came when his, Les was declining in health and not doing very well, that, uh, that he passed away unexpectedly. And uh, his wife called me up. I remember that it was July 4th That I got a message from her. It was on the church recorder and it, it, went, to my, it went to my voice message. And, and then, it, then it came to the, the computer there and I, and, I, and I got it and I called her up, we made an appointment to see her, and we did the service there, and, and I remember the Sunday night before we did the service, I, I told some of our church, I said, listen, there's going to be a, a lot of Filipino family members there, he was married to a sweet Filipino lady that I'd led to Christ, and I said, I I said, I said, all of my Filipino members, if you can, if you can get off of work early, or if you're offering, would you, would you give me a couple hours to come to the service to be supportive of that, because I think he's going to have a large gathering of people there, and I'm thankful probably about 25, 30, maybe 40 of our, of our Filipino uh, members came to, the, uh, came to serve, and others beyond the Filipinos. Came and, 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 and just, and, and again, I had to struggle with that service because they, they, they switched gears on me. I was supposed to just run with the service, but I always prepare in case they switch on me that I always get the last word in. And they brought a, they brought a priest in and some other things like that. And I said, Well, what am I going to do with the situation? And I, and I asked his wife, I said, Now, Mrs. Johns, I said, If you don't mind, I just, you know, why don't you go ahead and let your niece, whoever, you know, let them go ahead and MC this thing and they'll go through their rituals and stuff. But let me go last. Let me just finish up the service because I just have some special things that I think will be a blessing and comforting your family. She said, Pastor Fong, sure, we'll let you go last. You do whatever you have to do. And I said, please let me go last, but don't leave with only five minutes, okay? Give me a little bit more than five minutes on there. And so the priest got up, did his thing. He was throwing his holy water all over the place there, and, and, uh, and, he, and he quoted some scriptures in a different translation of the Bible. That I, And I thought, okay, what am I going to do here? And so I said, okay, I'm just going to throw my notes away. I'm just going to preach from the heart, amen, you know? And just ask God what to do. He gave the gospel there, and he did something very unusual in that service. That I normally don't do. I do every now and then, but just I didn't. You know, if I feel really compelled by the Holy Spirit. I do it. And, and I gave the gospel because I, I had a chance beforehand, they had coffee and some refreshments before the service, and I got a chance to, uh, you know, to uh, fellowship with some of the people, get to know them, and I was making a mental note of their names and how I'm going to follow up with them, and, and some of our members came in, and they were doing the same thing, and they said, Pastor, I met this person, I said, okay, make a note of their name, we're going to follow up with them and go after them and so forth. And uh, after I, I gave the invitation, and I told them how to get saved, and I gave them the sinner's prayer, I said, now look, if you really believe what you prayed, if you really believe what you prayed, and you, you prayed that prayer, and you trusted Jesus Christ your Savior, I want you to do me a favor. Les is watching from heaven with our Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you know you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, I want you to stand up with me in this funeral home right now. I want you to stand up with me and identify with Jesus Christ. And about 16 to 18 people stood up and identified they received Jesus Christ as Savior. And I told them as they stood there, I said, Listen, by, by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ, there's going to be a reunion one day in heaven that you're going to have with Les Johns. I've preached that many, many times. And so I wanted to just say to you tonight that what he's saying here, he's talking about the influence of a dead... Of a, of a saved person, but he's passed away, the influence of their testimony was so powerful. And what was said about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and what was said about the resurrection of the future resurrection believer had such an impact on their lives that the end result was that these people, they got saved and they got baptized. That's what he means. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise at all? Paul's saying, if there's no resurrection for the dead, then there's nothing compelling to tell an unsaved person why they should get baptized. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you you don't believe in the resurrection of the uh, resurrected body, the believer. He says, What, what good is your message? Your, your message loses its punch and it loses its impact, its influence. But when you talk about the hope of the resurrection, listen, there's something behind it that's so convicting that somebody says, I don't want to be left behind and I don't want to go to hell. I want to, be, I want to make sure I'm saved and I'm going to go to heaven and be with my loved one forever and forever. Amen. Let me tell you a story I read. I got a little bit more I got to cover it tonight. I read a story about the Finnish. About, about the people of Finland. It was about the Finnish-Russian War. And the story was written by a man that was an engineer that fought for the, the, Finnish, the, the people of Finland. His last name was Nordenburg. They captured a number of these Russian soldiers, which were their enemies. They captured seven specifically. They brought them to a town hall where they took these men and incarcerated them in the the basement down below. The next morning, it was determined, those Russian soldiers were to be executed. The Finns and the Russians were hostile enemies. The Finnish soldiers cursed these men they reviled them. I mean, there was a bitter, acrid hatred they had toward these Russian soldiers. The Russian soldiers that were incarcerated downstairs in that basement, they were doing all kinds of things. Honestly, they were stir crazy because they were facing the prospect of being shot the next morning. Some of them were beating the walls with their fists until they were bloodied. Others were yelling out, I want to see my wife and my children. They would say in Russian, they were calling out their wives' names, their children, they said, I'm going to die tomorrow. At least give me an opportunity to talk to my family. Wish I wish they were calling up for their family. There was, just, there was just wildness going on there. The Finnish soldiers listening to that just mocked them and laughed at them. They spat on them. But there was one Russian soldier In the midst of all that was just sitting in a corner entertaining himself. I mean when I say entertain, he's just minding his own business. Very sober. This man started to sing. His name was Koskinen. Koskinen started to sing. First softly. And then loudly. And he started to sing very loudly, a sands of a hymn he had learned three weeks before, having stood around and heard a Salvation Army musical ensemble sing this song. That was back in the day of the, you know, the Brengles and, and, the, and the founder of the, of, the, of the Salvation when they preached the gospel there. And the song he was singing was, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, Safe on His Gentle breast, Thereby his love or shadowed, sweetly my soul shall rest. Harkest the voice of angels, born in a song to me, over the fields of jasper, over the crystal sea. This man was singing that those stanzas in the chorus from Safe in the Arms of Jesus. And if you know the song, it's a beautiful song. One of the Russian comrades said, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Are you trying to convert us to religion? Stop this madness. That's what he said. In Russian he said, stop this madness. And the Finnish soldiers were just kind of stunned. What's this guy doing? Koskinen looked at his comrade and tears just broke out on his his eyes. He said, comrades, would you listen to me for a minute? I got this song three weeks ago. Listening to a Salvation Army ensemble sing and preach about God's Son, Jesus Christ. He said, my friends, my mother sang about Jesus and prayed to Him always. He had a God-fearing mother. He said, comrades, I'm singing right now because tomorrow I'm going to meet my maker. He made the statement, it's cowardly to hide your beliefs. He said, the God my mother believed in was not my God. He said, As we got incarcerated here yesterday, I can't tell how it happened, but I was laying in the bed. I couldn't go to sleep. I was awake. And all I could see was my mother's tender face. I could see her singing to Jesus, and I could hear her praying for my soul to be saved. He said, comrades, I had to find my Savior and find my hiding place in Him. And while laying in that bed, I prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ that He would forgive me and cleanse my sinful soul and get me ready to stand before Him tomorrow morning. He said it was a strange night. He said there were times when everything seemed to shine around me. Verses from the Bible and the psalm book came to mind. He said it was God's answer to my prayer. He said, I, I couldn't keep it to myself. He said, as you guys were hitting the wall and complaining, I thought, within a few hours, all seven of us are going to be shot because we're the enemy. He says, but I know one thing. I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm saved I'm going to be with the Lord. And I, he said, I want you to know that as well there too. Koskinen started telling him these men that. One of them said, Koskinen, pray for me. Tomorrow I shall die also. And the way I am right now, my soul will be in the hands of the devil. He grasped Koskinen by, the sh- by his arms right here. Koskinen grabbed him. His two Russian comrades, they both kneeled down. and They started praying out loud. Koskinen for his comrade. His comrade calling out to God to save his soul. The other five soldiers soon, they started crying. They started realizing just there was a moving of God that was in that room there. All of those men got down on their knees and started crying out. They said, please do something for us. And this is what this is what this is that Norden Nordenberg who, who who was giving this testimony said, he said the chain he was he was the guard in charge of all this. Nordenberg said this the change in the atmosphere was indescribable. He said, some of the men sat on the floor, some on benches, some went quietly, others talked of spiritual things. None of us had a Bible, but the Spirit of God was speaking to all of us. And what he was saying there was this this Finnish soldier, Nordenberg, says, That man's testimony, knowing that he was going to die, but knowing he had such a sweetness and a peace about him was infecting not only the Russian soldiers, but the Finnish soldiers as well. All of a sudden, bitter enemies over the next several hours, instead of being bitter enemies, they just, there was, the hostilities were put aside. And there was weeping and there was crying. And they, they just seemed to be, there just to be something going on with them. And as the day was dawning, no one had slept. None of the soldiers had slept on either side. Nobody slept. And to Koskinen, Koskinen they, they turned to him and they said, Koskinen, sing that song one more time. Sing safe in the arms of Jesus. And he lifted up with a, with a bellowing voice and he sang again, and once and again. And they allowed him to sing and he sing, sang safe in the arms of Jesus. And so as he finished singing there, singing that song, they said, time had come, we have to usher them out. They had just sung that song and the sun was rising, and as the sun was rising, those men were ushered out, and they were all told to kneel down. And those men, normally, they would put a covering over those men's head before they would execute them by fire by, by shooting them. All seven of those men said, Please don't put a covering on our head. We don't we just shoot us as we are. We don't want a covering over our head. And they said, We're safe in the arms of Jesus there. And as soon as they said that, the, the Finnish soldiers, they had just been impacted by this and their hearts moved. They moved their rifles and they were somewhat reluctant now to shoot them because of all that God had done over those last seven hours. But they cocked their rifles back. They shot those men. They, they, they killed those men for, for who they wore there. But this man, Nordenberg wrote down here. He says, you know what? I watched that man as he died. I watched that man die as a strong Christian. That man's faith, even though he's the enemy, there is something about that man's faith that affected me. And I want to tell you, he said, that I, I, I got my faith in Jesus Christ. I placed my faith in Jesus Christ there at that moment because of the faith of a man who looked in the faith of his Savior and knew that he had a resurrected Savior. He's going to see one day. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now. Paul wrote verse 29 to help remind us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is given to us and is for us for the conversion of sinners. Listen is what James Boyer, the, the commentator, said about this verse. He said, The hope of the resurrection as held by saved people was, after they died, a powerful incentive to their loved ones still loving to be saved and baptized. Now, let me say this tonight. I've got two more points. We're done. Let me say this tonight. You're watching by live stream, if you're not born again. You're not saved. God loves you. God wants you to get saved. God doesn't want you to spend eternity in hell. God wants you to know that you have a loved one that may have predeceased you that was saved, they've gone to, they've died. They've gone to heaven, but they're not dead. They're really alive. They've graduated from this life. And they're they're in a place where there's no death, there's no sorrow, there's no dying. They're in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the effect of their testimony is that He being dead, you speaketh. The testimony of your loved one is that you also might get saved. That you also would place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you tonight, if you're not saved and born again, right now is a good time, or sometime before this service is over, I encourage you to to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Tell Him that you Repent of your sins and you believe with all your heart that Christ died for you and he'll save you right now. And on this 21st day of October, you can be born again into God's family. The resurrection is a a compelling factor for the conversion sinners. Quickly, we need to get going here. Notice verse 30, 32. The power of the resurrection encourages the conversion of sinners. But notice, secondly, the power of the resurrection encourages compelled service. It encourages compelled service. Now, look look at Paul's saying here. First thing he says in verse 20, 30, he continues the same line of thought. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I want you to think for a minute what Paul saying here. Why do me and my fellow apostles, why are we willing to be, to endanger our lives for the resurrection of Jesus, for the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ every hour? Now, from the get-go, you know about Paul's life. I mean, he was at risk. He preached the gospel in Damascus, Acts chapter 9. Remember that? The Jews said, okay, you used to be with us. Now you're against us. They plotted to kill him. What did they do? They took Paul. Some of his friends took Paul. They put him in a basket. And they let him down out the window down a wall for his escape. He was risking danger. Paul was run out of Iconium. He was at Lystra and they stoned him and left him for dead. He says here, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Paul was scourged and thrown to prison at Philippi. I mean, Paul, everywhere he went, he had to deal with hostile crowds. He had to deal with the potential stoning. He had to deal with a a bunch of riffraff Jews who would follow him and say bad things about him and disrupt his ministry. He's saying here, if the resurrection is not true... Why do I put myself in danger all the time? He's saying, listen, I am serving Jesus Christ. It has not deterred me. It has not inhibited me. It has not caused me to step back. Listen, I'm going to make a statement here. We are so risk averse. We are so risk management minded in our mind, if any danger comes, our risk management mindset comes into place and we think about all these safeties and protocols we want to do. But I want to tell you today, if you're going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're going to say something about the resurrect, resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is some risk we're going to have. There will be an element of time where we're going to be in danger for our faith. And if that's so, we have to remember the words of the Apostle Paul, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Then he said, secondly, something else in verse 31. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die daily. Now, if you've read this, you've been like me, and I've misinterpreted this verse. I've extracted I die daily, saying uh, to mean that, that dying to self, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about dying to self in this verse. He's not talking about dying to self. He's following the same line of thought. There are those who are skeptical about Paul's zeal in serving the Lord. So Paul affirms the risk of his life. By affirming an oath, that's what he means by protest. Protest means he, he made an oath. He was basically swearing, making, he was swearing to them by an oath. He was attesting by the signature of his name. He was affirming an oath that he said, he said, I make an oath to you by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus. In other words, he was thankful for all that God was doing in their life. But I mean, he said, I'm, I'm making oath to you. He's just re, trying to reinforce. I want to tell you why I'm so fervent about Jesus Christ here. He says, I am at a place in life where almost literally I'm at the place where I could be put to death every single day. I die daily. I die daily. You know, when I read that verse and the context of what Paul wrote it, man, we ought to be ashamed of our Christianity. Amen. Paul was out there seven days a week. I mean, Paul was preaching the gospel. I mean, Paul put his life at risk. I mean, Paul was not afraid to go to the synagogue. I mean, they attacked him there. He was not afraid to go to the public squares. They attacked him there. I mean, wherever he went, whatever strategy he had, they always attacked him. But that did not deter the apostle Paul. He says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus. He said, Corinthian believers, I'm rejoicing in all that God has done for you, but I want you to understand something. I want to affirm by an oath to you that I'm at risk of, I'm in danger of even dying every single day. And if you read 2 Corinthians 11, He talks about all the perils that he goes through in life. He says, I die daily. Then notice verse 32. If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now what is that? Beasts at Ephesus could mean false teachers who fought with him. Beasts at Ephesus could refer to to the mobs of people that thronged him and tried to kill him. And we read about that over when he was at Ephesus there in Acts chapter 19. Mobs of people could be literally, he may have had some exposure to some wild beasts. I don't think they threw him into the, that he was a Roman so they couldn't feed him to the lions. Because he was a Roman citizen. But I think he uses the wild beasts as a perhaps as a metaphor to talk about being a danger. But whatever it is. Paul is saying verses thirty to thirty two, I serve Jesus Christ, and what compels me to serve Jesus Christ is my belief in his resurrection. My belief in the power of his resurrection. I mean, I get up every morning he says, and the power of his resurrection compels me to serve him. The power of his resurrection compels me to know him, to seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. And yeah, I'm saying this to brother and sister in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, sometimes we, we use this phrase, we say we get burned out in serving, and we say we can't manage our time, and we say, well, I've got to have balance, I've got to have work life balance, and I've got to go home to my family and all these other things. But I want to tell you honestly, we are nothing but bunch of people that make excuses why we can't do anything for God, and we want to take time off, we want to take our sabbaticals from God, we want to take our time off from God, we're going to be asking without leave from God, and uh, we let COVID and everything else get away, but I'm going to tell you tonight, the Apostle Paul, if he lived right now, it doesn't matter there's COVID, he would still be on every street corner, at every train station, at every airport, every airport place he could, wherever it could be, where it could be, a public gathering, he would be there because, preaching the gospel, because he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was not ashamed to tell people he believed in the resurrection. And I'm just saying to you tonight, some of us are so meek and we are so weak and we are so withdrawn that we say, I can't serve God because of the distance and I can't serve God because of this. I'm going to tell you tonight, we, we don't want to serve God because we're the, the, the fact of the matter is we're just lazy. And the fact of the matter is, we're not compelled in our heart that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real and was supernatural and was power. And when Jesus rolled away the stone and when he came out of of the grave clothes, he proved that he was God. He said, "I, I am Jesus Christ. He said, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And listen, I want to tell you tonight, Paul served God. And Paul walked the distance. And Paul did the things he did because he believed with all his heart what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, that the compelling factor to service is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that's convicting, amen? amen. Beloved, if you then be risen with Christ? Seek those things that are above. I want to encourage you tonight. Our county's reopened. Our county's reopened. Amen. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with joy. Serve the Lord with gladness. You come back with a pouty face, you should stay on live stream. Don't come back the way you left. Come back revived. Come back resurrected. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection. Serve the Lord so that he gets the glory. Serve him with fervency. Serve the Lord for results. Serving for fruit that remains. Hey, serve the Lord when you're discouraged. Serve the Lord when you're rejected. Serve the Lord when there's Listen, let's get rid of this risk management mindset. And we realize, okay, well, this area is kind of a little dangerous here because there's some drug dealers over on this side here. And this area is a little dangerous over here because there's a bunch of atheists over here. And this, of this, state, this area is pretty good because these are all new movies. Hey, listen, we've got to reach everybody for the gospel of Jesus Christ or we lose the favor of God upon our church. And I'll tell you, you read these verses of Scripture, Paul did not practice risk management when it came to serving the Lord. Now, I'm not saying he was hazardous. It just came to him. I mean, he put his hand in the fire. He's putting some sticks in the fire and a viper came out and bit him on the hand. I'm saying to you tonight, do you believe in the power of the resurrection enough to endanger your life and risk dying every day for Jesus Christ? Boy, that challenges me. We have an American culture mindset. We need a Bible culture mindset. Amen? So tonight, I want to give you one last thing. The power of the resurrection encourages the conversion of sinners. The power of the resurrection encourages compelling service. Notice the last thing. We need to be done real quick. The power of the resurrection encourages consistent sanctification. Consistent sanctification. Look at two things Paul says here real quickly. Verse 32, verse 33. Be not deceived. Now remember, he's still on the same train of thought. He's getting at the root of why these Corinthian believers were stagnating. Why their services stopped. And if you look at the previous 14 chapters, all the, the issues he had to deal with in the church of Corinth. He said, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupts good manners. Now here's what he's saying in verse 32 because we need to move on. We must separate from corrupting company. We must separate from corrupting company. Evil communications means corrupting influence. Evil influence corrupts good morals, good character. You know, as a young person, you want to be around fun people. And as adults, you want to be around fun people. But as you get older, you start to realize it's important that the friends you have should match up with the Word of God. And the friends you have should be people of like precious faith. And the friends that you have are going the same direction. And so look at tonight. He says evil communications corrupts good manners. It's important we have godly friends in life. And what happened here? They got under the influence of wrong teachers and wrong influences. And, and somebody said, well, you know what? These Gnostics over here got some great new doctrine here. And I, I don't know about this Paul guy here, but man, you ought to listen to what these Gnostics are saying. They're, they're talking about this stuff. Listen, get away from that stuff. Stay with the Word of God. Amen. Don't, don't let this other stuff stray you away. He's saying here, don't be deceived. Evil communications, he says, corrupt good manners. Listen, I'm going to take, give you a statement here. You cannot achieve God's best in your life if the associations you have are negative about God or, or they're loose in their doctrine. You will never achieve the best in your life if the associations you have are, have a wrong connotation about God or they're very loose in their doctrine. You mark it down. You'll never get to where you need to be in life there. You may think you have the appearance of it, but it's not there. Then there's a the second thing he says. Look at verse 30, 34, and we're done. We're talking about consistent sanctification. Paul is trying to help him. He says, look at it, okay. Evil communications, corrupt Christian matters. You know who you've been around. You've been around these teachers, these, these Grecians here have been telling you that there's no resurrect, there's not going to be a resurrection believer. But he says, I'm going to tell you, and I'm not done with this chapter yet, he says, but I'm going to tell you there is. Now he says one last thing. And this is so important. One phrase. Awake to righteousness and sin not. He says, now you've been sleeping. You've been sleeping in your doctrine. You've been sleeping about service. You've been sleeping about your evangelism. You've been sleeping about all these things. He says, wake up. The alarm clock's going off. Wake up. It's going off. And you can't turn it off. Wake up. Awake. And he says, here's what you'd awake to. Awake to righteous living. Awake to righteous. Now, what's righteous living? Righteous living is living for God. Righteous living is biblical living. Righteous living is honoring Christ. Righteous living is holy living. Righteous living is sowing with a pure heart. Righteous living is when my speech coincides with what God wants me to say, that I say the right things, and when my spirit is right. Righteous living, he says, awake to righteousness is holy living. It's sanctification. Awake to righteousness. He says, sin not. He says, listen, I've gone over for 14 chapters everything you guys got going on. Your toleration of immorality. He says, you've got wrong doctrine here. You're being divisive. You're, You're you're carnal. He says, you're suing each other. He says, you're, you're, you're exalting your gifts over God. He says, we've got to stop all this stuff. You're succumbing to some temptation. He says, awake to righteousness. I and mean, he saved everything he wrote in the previous 14 chapters to get up here to verse 34 and says, wake up, awake to righteousness. And he said, stop sinning. And this is what he says, for some have not the knowledge of God. He says, look at what's happened in your community. You used to be on fire for God. You were, you were doing all these things for God. The moment I left and went away, he said, all, everything's fallen apart. Look what you've done to Corinthian society. He says, you need to start living righteously because some have not the knowledge of God. He said, you've got a lost world. Your testimony's been tarnished. You're hurting yourself among the lost people here. And he says, I speak this to your shame. He taught them how to have a heart for souls. You read Acts chapter 18. He taught them how to have a heart for souls. Now they became silent and absent when it came to proclaiming the resurrection of the gospel. I'm going to make a statement to you. I know we've had COVID 19, but I'm going to tell you something. Reading your Bible during COVID 19 is a norm, spending time with God in prayer during COVID 19 is a norm. Going to church during COVID-19 is a norm. Yeah. Winning souls for Jesus Christ during COVID-19 is a norm. Whether we're in COVID-19 or not in COVID-19, it doesn't change God's commandments. It doesn't change that we're a Christian. It doesn't change we need to wake up. It doesn't change that we're supposed to have revival. It doesn't change we're supposed to live for God. I mean, it, it doesn't change all that. He says, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. And he says, I speak this to your shame. Vance Habner said this, great thought. It's better to wake up 500 Christians than to convert 500 sinners. For if 500 Christians really wake up, they will win more than 500 sinners. Great thought. Let's wake up. Let's wake up. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a great incentive and encouragement for the conversion of sinners. For compelling service. Consistent sanctification. Belief determines behavior. Doctrine determines duty. That I may know Him, the power of His resurrection. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Let's rise up this evening. Let's awaken, Christian. Let's live for God. Let the church house be full on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. And Wednesday. Awake to righteousness. And sin not. Then tonight, in the beginning, I spoke for a long time about the influence of someone who's passed this life and their testimony for Jesus Christ. There's a reunion for every person who gets saved with that family member. And tonight, if you're not saved... You may have had a family member recently who's passed this life. They're in heaven. They're saved and they're in heaven. And their great longing for you is that you would get saved tonight and that you'd have a family reunion. We're going to help you with that tonight. We want to encourage you to know the resurrected Christ tonight, to let him come alive in your life. I'm not asking you to receive religion. I'm not asking you to pray a prayer per se. I'm asking you to repent of your sins and calling the Lord Jesus Christ the Savior you tonight. Let's bow our heads for prayer.